I'm Heidi Harris. This is the Heidi Harris Show podcast. I do these a couple of times a week. You can subscribe at iTunes for free, Heidi Harris Show. You can also catch my live radio broadcast weekdays. That's Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. at a.m. 670 KMZQ in Las Vegas. If you forget all of that, check it out at HeidiHarris.com. All the information is up there, HeidiHarris.com. Today, my guest is Ralph Peters. Now, Ralph Peters, you may know as a former strategic analyst at Fox News for many years. He's been on CNN for many years. He's written columns. He's written books. He's a career Army intel officer. He's been a guest on my show for about 15 years. I have tremendous respect for him. And he's a novelist also, and he's won numerous awards for his novels. His most recent is Darkness at Chancellorsville, and it is fantastic. Ralph Peters, welcome back to the Heidi Harris Show podcast. Great to have you. Heidi, is always, always great to speak with you. I've got your book. I'm already into it a couple of chapters. And the thing I love about your books is even if you're not a Civil War expert by any means, you are immediately drawn into the story and into the characters. This is a fantastic book. And the characters are just, they just jump off the page. Yeah, the characters indeed. I mean, it's really laid out for me. I just have to breathe some life into them. The characters on both sides at the Battle of Chancellorsville were absolutely fascinating. Obviously, on one side, you have Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, who was mortally wounded at the battle, and and many another dramatic Southerner. But the Northerners, in in some ways, they're almost more interesting. It starts out the campaign as a, it looks like it's going to be a massive Union victory, and against, greatly against the odds, Lee and Jackson pull it out. But the study of leadership shouldn't only be about the successes about the failures. And when you study Joe Hooker and all that went wrong and why in the Army of the Potomac, you find not only leadership lessons for today, but you start discovering more relevance. I mean, we've talked about that, Heidi. The Civil War is very relevant today in many of our social issues and political issues. But also, on the battlefield of Chancellorsville, a big issue was immigration. There was great prejudice against German immigrants at the time, They'd flooded in in the 1850s, and Germans, actually, contrary to the popular myth, they fight very bravely and very well, but they wind up getting blamed for the uh, for the Union defeat. I always blame the new guys. <laughs> always blame the new guys. Just speaking with Ralph Peters. Yeah, in the beginning of your book, you have a little a citation to Dr. James Pula in honor of his pioneering work on the vital, dramatic, and long-slighted roles played by immigrants and freedom fighters from Central and Eastern Europe in our Civil War. And that's what you're referring to. And I think that is a story that many people haven't heard. Indeed. And Dr. Pula has done pioneering research. And, you know, I always try to, 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 to share things with readers and to give credit where it's due and not, not be a ball hog or a glory hog. And, yes, the story of immigration in the Civil War, I've written elsewhere about the Irish uh, immigrants and the prejudice they faced. Um, the Germans were a different bunch. The Irish came over uh, fleeing the potato famine of the late 1840s. The Germans came here fleeing the failed freedom fighter revolutions of 1848, and they came to a new land, fell in love with United States and its freedoms, but they were regarded as foreigners. And when war comes, they volunteer. And, and, you know, most of the armies are made up of 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. But these Germans, it's you know, they've been over here a while. They've got families. They've got professions. They've got businesses. Uh, they've got children. Nonetheless, they volunteer to serve their new country. On average, these Germans are much older 
than the average uh, average soldier. But they go to fight for their country anyway, their new country. And it's an inspiring story, but also discouraging in the fact that uh, they do things right, and they still get the blame. They get nicknamed the Flying Dutchman, claims that they just ran away when, in fact, they didn't. You know what? It's funny. I've heard that phrase a million times, and honestly, I did not know where it came from. You just gave me another piece of interesting history, Ralph Peters. I did yeah, not know it. came from Chancellorsville. They took it you know, from Wagner's opera, of course, The Flying Dutchman, and they thought it was funny. to. Uh, it was popular at that time. So they thought it was funny to call the Germans who ran away the Flying Dutchman. That's hilarious. I did not know that. You also have a character in your book who's very good with the saber, and that's another thing that you never hear anybody talk about. No, in the Civil War, uh, the era of saber fighting is going away. It's turning into the age of carbon fighting and pistol fighting, firearms. But there are so many immigrants, and the one you're talking about is a French officer who served in the Crimean War, he served in the wars in Italy, and he's a graduate of Saint-Cyr, the French military academy. The Union especially, both sides to an extent, but the Union especially, is this international hodgepodge of uh, volunteers. Uh, one of the heroes of Chancellorsville, um, unsung hero, as not exactly household names, a Polish officer, Colonel Wuczemir Szyzynowski. And uh, he makes a valiant stand. He's a Pole commanding Germans. And he's commanding two regiments that basically save an entire flank of the Union Army from total destruction. And, of course, Stonewall Jackson's absolutely a fascinating character. And one, um, before people's, people tear down Stonewall Jackson's statues, they really ought to do a little research into, him, into the guy. Here's a man who, before the Civil War, before he gets a nickname Stonewall on the battlefield of Manassas, um, he's a man who's a teacher at VMI in Lexington, Virginia, and this guy angers his neighbors by opening a Sunday school for free blacks and slaves. Jackson broke Virginia law to teach slaves to read. Yeah. And now we want to tear down this guy's statues? Absolutely. Because he did what he thought was right and fought on the side of his family and friends and neighbors. Uh, it's a much more complex and richer war in human terms than we accept. And also, Heidi, at Chancellorsville, the, the battle that forms the core of the book, Darkness at Chancellorsville, um, more men died, more Americans died in a couple of days at Chancellorsville than have died in all of our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. That's incredible. We're speaking with Ralph Peters. His latest book is Darkness at Chancellorsville. Uh, his latest novel, he writes amazing, he's written nonfiction too, obviously, one tons of awards for his Civil War writing, and it's fascinating, and you just get right into the characters immediately. You know, it's interesting, too, when you talk about the characters in the Civil War, you talk about some of these people who has, have flaws, and I know there are a lot of people who pick on Donald Trump. I know you're not his biggest fan, but they'll pick on him for this or that or the other, and I'm thinking to myself, uh, forget about him. I'll put him aside for a second, but for example, you've got General Grant, a drinker, a chain smoker, all these things. Would this guy have ever been elected president today? Everybody's looking for a perfect person, right? Yeah, well, we're looking for somebody who's entertaining. And that's not necessarily what you want a president. As for Trump, when he does something right, I'll give him credit. Right. When he does something wrong, I'll say I think it's wrong. I actually think he's doing the right thing with the, uh, with the trade war with China. It's about time somebody stood up to the Chinese. But no, it's, it's concerning to me that we seem to need it. We need a president who performs well on television, who entertains us, 
And boy, I hate it when somebody says, oh, I can have a beer with that guy. Heidi, I don't want a president I can have a beer with. <laughs> I want a president who can lead the free world. Right. Isn't that all, didn't that all start after Kennedy, after Kennedy and Nixon and those debates and the way you looked on television suddenly became a huge issue, whereas in the past it hadn't been as obviously, it wasn't even a factor? Yeah, it did, but, I mean, Nixon wasn't good on television. Carter wasn't very good on television. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was, wasn't great on television. Uh, I think, really, you're right. It starts with Kennedy, but where it starts hitting critical mass, where we don't care about expertise or experience is a dirty word. We want a fresh face. We want, we want somebody who can be our pal. And that starts with Bill Clinton. And it applies to George W. Bush, and then it applies to Obama. We, we elected not, instead of electing statesmen, we elected personalities. Yep, that's true. And we haven't, in my view, I, I'm not a member of either party, but I don't feel like we've had a fully competent, fully qualified president since the elder Bush. Yeah, I remember you saying that. I actually knew people who said, oh, yeah, I'm going to vote for Clinton because he played saxophone on late night TV. Really? That's it? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's what they thought. I mean, that's what, unfortunately, that's what attracts a lot of people now is the celebrity, the cult of celebrity. But, you know, this has gone on throughout human history. Somebody speaks well and everybody just goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And their message may or may not, you know, carry any weight, but it resonates with people. And even if they don't fulfill all their promises, we're used to politicians not doing that. We just give them a free pass. Yeah, no, you made a good point. I mean, Julius Caesar was a celebrity in his time. Yeah. And that's how it is. But the Civil War... We're lucky we had a president who wasn't a celebrity. We had Abraham Lincoln. Right. Now, Abraham Lincoln, though, took a lot of grief from people at the time, right? A lot of folks say, well, Donald Trump's taken more grief than anybody else. And, you know, you compare him to Abraham Lincoln. How would you compare what Lincoln dealt with as far as the hatred coming from people in America versus somebody like Donald Trump? I'm not comparing the men at all. I'm just comparing the the attitude. No, uh, Lincoln uh, suffered much worse abuse. He was the nicest thing people called him was the ape. Uh, and the journalists uh, in reputable journals would make fun of him and, and mock him, and cartoonists had a ball with him. Um, if any president, any decent president, really suffered unfair attacks, and there have been a lot of fair, unfair attacks on presidents, Lincoln got the worst of it. Because it was a time of civil war, and even the North was divided between those who wanted to free the slaves, those who just wanted to preserve the Union, members of various political parties, some wanted peace now. And there was plenty of fake news in the Civil War. Uh, There were journalists who just made it up, and it infuriated the military commanders when they'd read utterly inaccurate reports. In fact, after Chancellorsville, there was a German freedom fighter, Emma Gray, Carl Schurz, who goes on to be a heroic American in many spheres. But Carl Schurz at Chancellorsville was commanding a division. His division makes a stand. Wuchman Shizhenovsky, the Polish colonel I mentioned, works for Schwartz. They do the best they can. They hold the line as long as they can against odds of five or six to one at at the point of decision. Um, And they hold on as long as they can. And later on, he is utterly unfairly blamed uh, and and chastised and made fun of uh, for being a German who ran away when, in fact, he held on to the last drop. Um, Life's not fair. 
We're speaking with Ralph Peters. Of course, you know him from the Fox News Channel. You know him from CNN. You know him from his, probably from his books and his columns. His latest is Darkness at Chancellorsville. One of the things that you t really illustrate very well in this book, Ralph, and all of your Civil War novels is the conditions under which these men had to fight. They were dirty. They didn't have the clothes. They didn't have the shoes. They didn't have a lot of things that our men and women take for granted now, yet they still fought valiantly. Yeah, in the medical care. Right. Um, yeah, and, and, and Chancellorsville was an ugly, close-in battle, fought in thickets and, and dense woods for the most part. And soldiers burned to death. Uh, while, while, you know, their comrades are watching, and these wounded men are trying to crawl away from the flames, and the flames catch up with them and surround them, and they can't be rescued because there's a wall of flame around them. Mm. And the, the screams of men, wounded men burning to death is really the... That's really the swan song of Chancellorsville. But it's a battle that, again, it should have been a great Union victory. The Union had odds of three to one, a brilliant campaign plan. But when Union General Joe Hooker comes face to face, with, as it were, with Robert E. Lee, he folds, he falls apart, he has a run of bad luck. Chancellorsville turns, into, it turns out to be a, a great Confederate victory, but it's a Pyrrhic victory because it cost the men, it cost the South, lives of men they can't replace. The Union has manpower reserves and immigrants coming in. The South doesn't. So Lee's army is badly bled. And worse, the, the victory, the stunning victory at Chancellorsville convinces Lee that his army can't be defeated. The Army of Northern Virginia can't be defeated. And when a general starts thinking he can't be defeated, he's on the road to defeat. And indeed, shortly after Chancellorsville, Lee was on the road to Gettysburg. Yeah, we're speaking with Ralph Peters. The newest book is Dark Darkness at Chancellorsville. It's a Civil War novel. How much of victory is attributable to guts, and how much to strategy, would you think, depending on the war? And depending on the battle. A good plan is essential to get you started. But plans start changing as soon as the shooting starts, if not before, in the case of Chancellorsville. Um, strategy, charismatic leadership is very important. Jackson and Lee were both charismatic leaders. Um, there's, and, and luck matters. I mean, uh, Hooker, who's doing his best, he's inadequate, he's doing his best. He's standing on a porch watching the battle develop, and a, a Confederate shell hits a pillar holding up the porch, splinters off, hits him on the head with a chunk of wood. He gets a concussion at, the, at literally the crucial hour of the battle, and he's out of commission. And so... You know, leadership, luck, strategy, training, uh, the morale. Morale is a huge issue. And morale is uh, initially good on both sides of Chancellorsville, but uh, the North uh, slowly folds as, as Lee's men do what seems to be the impossible. It's, it's incredibly dramatic. And, you know, although Darkness at Chancellorsville is classified as a novel, because the publishing world doesn't have something better to call it, it's really a dramatized history, not a novel. All the characters from the generals down to the privates are real people based on their letters home, their diaries, their memoirs, the official records. So while it's told in an exciting way, it's dramatic, and the characters are fascinating characters, when you read this, you are getting 100% accurate history. The only thing that's in remotely fictional is that I'm trying to understand the men and how they felt and some of the dialogue, of course, is invented. But I was a soldier. I know how soldiers talk. So 
these, this is, I feel these books, and people have said it, they're as close as you're going to get to experiencing the Civil War today. Absolutely. I mean, it's absolutely engrossing. Let's go back to the media for a second. I was just reading recently a book about General Sherman. This will be no, obviously no news to you. He also hated the press the people who traveled with him. And so people act like, oh, now it's all, as you mentioned, the fake news is nothing new. There are people who will reveal uh, the other side's uh, position or obviously report the wrong news, and it's always been an issue. Yeah, it has. It's all, journalists have always been leaking plans. Um, Stonewall Jackson uh, kept secrets. He, he kept his plans totally to himself. didn't even tell his subordinate generals he, wouldn't, he didn't want them to leak. Uh, General Meade had bad luck with journalists. Sherman just hated them, wanted to hang them. I mean, Lincoln has to intervene a couple of times in the war to say, hey, go easy on the journalists, because Lincoln knows he needs the press on his side. And by the way, when Grant comes east, Grant understands it. Grant doesn't much like journalists. He's not a glory hog. He doesn't want to be in the papers particularly. Um, but he, he treats the press fairly. And, you know, they give, get reasonable access and as a result, some of the reporters really mature, and they do a pretty good job. But, yeah, fake news, lies, vituperation. I'm sure they've been with us since uh, the news was passed on uh, clay tablets in ancient Egypt. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the thing. When you read this book, this is fantastic. Once again, Ch Darkness at Chancellorsville. You read these kind of books, or you read regular history books of any kind, you realize that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Human nature never changes. There's always intrigue. There are always people jockeying for position, weaknesses, human frailties you see, people who are uh, braggadocious, whatever it may be. This, it's always the same. It doesn't change. Indeed. And I think sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that, oh, people were simpler back then. <laughs> Times were simpler. Right. Well, no, human beings have always been incredibly complex. Check out William Shakespeare. <laughs> right. Um, you know, human beings have always been emotionally complex, spiritually complex, and, and obviously we're physically complex and various. But also, the men of the Civil War and the women, they were undergoing a period of technological change that was even more unsettling. Uh, it did more to change the world than the Internet in our times because with the telegraph hitting critical mass, railroads, steamships crossing the Atlantic, um, suddenly distance, time and distance are collapsing. For the first time in all of history, human beings can communicate across hundreds and thousands of miles in near real time. You don't, you're not limited to the speed of the horse or the sailing ship. You, you now have steam power, the locomotive, uh, you, and, or, this, or the steamship that can, instead of crossing the ocean in six weeks, crosses it in nine, ten, or eleven days. It's, it's a changing world. And these men are very much, they're confused by change. Weapons are changing, and they don't understand them. Just since the Mexican War, a dozen years before, weapons have changed profoundly, and the tactics that worked in the Mexican War don't work anymore. And it leads to a bloodbath. So, yeah, the similarities with our time, the questions of immigration, of race, of what fits in where, and even of technological change are all there in our civil war. And it's a terrible thing that we've taken serious detailed history teaching out of our schools uh, because it's vitally important. It's vital to be an informed citizen and voter. But also history, you know, it's his story. It's a story. Right. It's a story. And if you approach it as a story, instead of just dry facts to memorize, tell the story 
and suddenly the past will come to life. And that's what I'm trying to do for our fellow citizens, to make our vivid past, our important past, our vital past, come to life. Yes, absolutely true. Ralph Peters, what a great book. Now, before I let you go, I've got to ask you a couple of questions about the Mueller report and Iran. I always want to get your expertise on this because I know that you said that Mueller was a man of integrity. I think a lot of people were shocked on the right that he didn't go after Trump, and the people on the left were shocked that he didn't do what they wanted him to do. What are your thoughts on the Mueller report? Well, I think Mueller was determined to behave as straightforwardly and as honestly as he could. And he didn't judge the president. He, he let the justice, you know, the attorney general do it. Now, you can argue that that was the wrong thing to do. He should have come to a conclusion. But he absolutely behaved honorably. He, he didn't draw, you know, he, he laid out in great detail all the cases that were possible instructions of justice. He laid out the Russia side of things in great detail. And, you know, if we are to be honest, had, the, had this report come out about any previous president, the cries from impeachment would have been from both sides. But that's neither here nor there. I stick by my belief that Mueller is an honorable man, and he did the very best he could for his country, and he didn't want to overstep. In an age when everybody wants to overstep, when we're anxious to you know, jump the shark, uh, Mueller did what he believed to be the right thing. And he hasn't been out beating his chest about it either. All right. That's what you've said all along, that he was a man of integrity, and it didn't surprise me at all when the result came out. I thought, I thought about what you had said about him, because you certainly have had more dealings with him than I've ever had. Uh, so what do you think about Trump's uh, the North Korea at this point? Nothing's really happened with North Korea. He still seems as if he's not criticizing him as much as he should be. Well, in Japan, he made a real blunder. He not only undercut John Bolton, he cut our, undercut uh, uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan, right. who had been going out of his way to host him well. I mean, when Trump said, well, the missiles, those missile tests don't matter, well, they certainly, certainly matter to our ally Japan. It's just across a short body of water. Right. Those, the missiles they tested can reach Japan. And, you know, you have to think of your allies. You can't shoot from the hip. And President Trump, you know, had you asked him exactly the same question, uh, at a different time that day, you might have gotten a totally different answer. I know. And that's what's hard for people to deal with, is the unpredictability. Now, on the other hand, I think he's dealt very well with Iran so far. Iran was feeling its oats. They were ready to pull a stunt, and they think they can drive us out of the Middle East. And Trump didn't attack them. He sent a carrier, sent some air defense missiles, and some, a small number of reinforcements to the Gulf to let the, Amer the Iranians know that if they do try anything, we are ready and we will reply in great force. Nobody's been shooting yet. Now, it could come to that, but I think his measured response was right. And I, I don't think Trump wants a war. In fact, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Uh, but uh, it, it's frustrating because he'll do something that I think is, yes, that needed to be done, and then he'll undercut it. He contradicts himself. And, you know, both the stock market and the international uh, seen rely on they need reliability yeah they need to be able to count on us count on the american economy count on the american president and the unpredictability is what really hurts do you feel good about mike pompeo i mean he seems to be a pretty stabilizing force and at this point trump seems to be listening to him well i, I think mike pompeo i mean god knows you could do worse right uh pompeo i think is is doing his best i might not see eye to eye on all issues but He's the guy who whispers in Trump's ear, not me. But I think all in all, Pompeo is certainly 
more positive than negative. Yeah, measured response is what we need, and I appreciate that. Ralph Peters, always a privilege to speak to you. The brand new book is Darkness at Chancellorsville. I'm sure people can get it anywhere. If you're a Civil War buff, you'll love it. If you're a history buff like me, you'll love it. You'll get right into these characters and, it, and, and you know, everything, including the language that they used and the phrases they used back then. You've got that so right, and it's just such a great book. Thank you, Heidi. Always a privilege. Thank you, Ralph. I'm Heidi Harris. Now, listen, if you can't get enough of me and who could blame you, join me for my weekday live show from AM 670 KMZQ in Las Vegas. I'm on weekdays, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Heidi Harris Show, and find all of this information at HeidiHarris.com. Until we meet again, remember, you were created for a purpose. Here's Tony Scottwell. Scottwell.